right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. It's the One Health Podcast. It's another great week here. I'm your host, Tori Schmelzer. I am a fitness enthusiast slash fitness entrepreneur. My goal each week is to share the knowledge I gather through meeting industry experts with as many people as I can. Uh, for those of you who have not listened to the One Health Podcast yet, each week we are going to bring on different experts in areas of health. So that could be mental health, physical health, professional health, spiritual health, and uh, we're going to bring them on, interview them for the greater good, and get as much information out there as we can. Thanks again for all the love and support. Thank you for subscribing. The love on Facebook and Instagram has been overwhelming. Make sure you guys do us a favor. Go on that little purple podcast app on your phone and leave us a review on iTunes. That really, really does help us in the rankings. Um, one thing I also wanted to do was thank our sponsors once again, EcoGym and Team Motivating You. These guys have been fantastic and crucial to this show, getting out there to the masses. And the more people we can get these good, positive messages to, the better. Make sure you guys go to shop.teammotive, the number eight, the letter N, and the letter U.com. They're going to give you a free food plan. And for those of you that haven't done that before with a nutritionist or somebody like that, that is a huge value. So the first ones on them, make sure you guys go to that website, sign up for that today. Uh, also eco gym, www.ecogymworldwide.com. Get your free seven day pass, find a club near you. They are doing a special six weeks for $6 through the end of the month here. Check them out. They have 24 hour access. They're doing red light therapy, hyperbaric therapy, all sorts of cool stuff. Um, today on the show, I have the one and only Cody Gothier. Cody, <laughs> did I get that right? You did get that right. I love how you started with the one and only. Like, like, this, <laughs> like this rare breed. <laughs> you are, man. You're special. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, Cody is a university therapist, a professor of psychology, and a mental health and addiction advocate who has struggled himself with mental health and who hopes to destigmatize men seeking help when needed. Uh, so once again, Cody, thanks again for being on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I guess take us back. We need, I really was excited when you and I talked I, and I got a little bit of your story. I don't like to get a whole lot right off the bat so we can kind of generally discover this as we go and see what rabbit holes we go down. But you definitely, yeah. definitely had an interesting story and an interesting perspective. So take us back uh, to kind of growing up in a small town and what kind of issues you faced growing up that kind of led you to where you are now. Totally. Yeah. So I was, first of all, I appreciate that. I kind of like the authenticity of being able to just be like, oh, okay, he hasn't heard this yet. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I grew up in a small town. I mean, I'm from Northern New Hampshire. So nobody, I have a feeling your listeners have no idea where that would, I'm closer to Canada than I am any other Northeastern state. Okay. Um, graduated with a, with like 45 kids. So, um, everybody knew everybody, which was fantastic for some people and unfortunate for other people, including me. Um, I think, um, sort of my story began as like a lot of students, if, or if you, um, whether it was with bullying, things like that, where, um, there was a lot of judgment. And I think, I think that's where it started. I think I, um, I never had a full sense on who I was when I was in late elementary middle school because you just try to stick where you stick in terms of friend groups even if you don't fit 
Um, so I would stick wherever I wherever I ended up sticking at the risk or at the exposure of everyone else, sort of like being like, oh, he, like these are the these are the things that we're going to point out about about him that might, you know, that I was the butt of some jokes, and and I think it went both ways, and and it, it never really matters because at the end of the day, like we're all sort of shitting on each other. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Because because that's because that's what middle school is, but you never know what ends up continuing to stick after you leave. Um, and that's sort of where my story began was that the things that I thought were just like stuff that happens in middle school that you just get through because guys just get through being called different things sort of sticks with you um, a little further, even if you don't know it at first. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's funny. You don't realize at that age how deep your words can kind of cut somebody. And it's funny. You think from a male's perspective, there's this stigma in the general public where it's like, oh, I just I have to brush that off because I'm a male and I have to be tough in front of everybody. So I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up because that is 100 percent the case. And I know I went through it personally, too, you know, going through those middle school, high school years. Well, and it compounds, too, because, I mean, you play sports and then there's this added pressure of, okay, you're supposed to you're supposed to feel this way. You're supposed to um you're supposed to not talk about certain things because again you're with these you're with these people who you're constantly in fear of judgment but you can't let people know about it because then you look less whatever quote unquote there's the stigma of being the male so that 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 makes it it sort of compounds on itself until you're just not saying anything at all Um, that's that's sort of where that that's the rabbit hole that um, a lot of a lot of men that i see now in my profession when, what we end up finding out is they were in the same place where they, there was a lot of things that they could have talked about and they actively were like, no, we're going to push that aside at that time because that's what you had to do. We were protecting ourselves. Yeah. hundred percent. So you got to, okay. So you went through that in middle school and stuff like that. Yeah. When did this sort of, um, eating disorder thing kind of start to manifest itself and come to life? Oh, I, it was around, and I was thinking about that leading up to this, and because um, the timeline is is still like interesting, because I I think it started around junior year. I knew that I um, I was getting into the my junior senior year of sports, so I again, and I didn't feel like I fit in. I was a little bit bigger, and even there were anyone at that time, my sophomore year of high school, would have said, "Cody, you're not even that big," but I was living with the the image of the middle school me, which was like just a little bit heftier, right? Um, and and that was the person, that was the kid who got made fun of. So I lost a ton of weight in junior year, junior year summer. Um, and it was, I did it in a, a healthy way at that time. Um, I just ran and did a lot of cardio, whatever else. I was doing a little bit of restricting, but I don't think anyone on the outside would have really noticed that. It wasn't like blatant. Um, and then everyone was telling me how skinny I was. And I never believed them. They were like, oh my God, you look so much different. Oh my God, like, and things changed, but I didn't feel any different. So everyone, everybody around me was like, oh, my God, I can barely recognize you. And to this day, when I go back to my hometown, I live 3,000 miles away now. But when I go back, some people who haven't seen me since either high school or early college are like, wow, you look so much different than that pudgy middle school kid. And I'm like, thanks. But for a long time, I never <laughs> for a long time, it didn't matter. <laughs> yeah. So because, it, I mean, at the end of the day, I still believed the people who made me feel the worst about myself. And I think that's always been the over, that's been the voice that's mattered the most. And it's dictated all the actions that I've, 
and all the things that I that to to a certain point of have been the things that you avoid when even when you're in the throes of an eating disorder. Gotcha. So when so you started realizing that this might be a problem. When was that? Was that when you finally got to college then? Or was it well, before it was that? Interesting. Well, it was interesting because during college, I was like, okay, now I need to fit in with a different group. Like in high school, I need to be skinny. And in college, I need to get, I need to bulk up. So I immediately was like, okay, everybody else around me is going and is lifting and doing heavy weights and stuff like that. So I just like, I did what everyone else did. Because then the part of me that felt like I wasn't fitting in was the part that was, that was skinny at that time. So I had to go chase that. Um, I, and I was chasing it again for the wrong reasons. Um, so I never would have been satisfied. And I got to a point, actually, there's a picture of me, my sophomore year of college where I actually got a little bigger and, and like, like bulkier. And I, I was, do, I was working out and stuff like that. Um, but I was also restricting and I was, um, I mean, I was working out like two and a half hours, almost three hours a day, like really going at it. And, wow. And I look back at that person and I'm like, I think about that time. It was about a year long period where I was like going on this bulk and then I'd cut down and it was very unhealthy the way I was doing it. Um, but it's sort of, sort of normalized too. like other people were bulking and cutting. It's sort of like, but I was doing it in a way more dangerous way. And um, I look back at that time and that was, that was sort of another, a different period of, of the eating disorder. But I think it was around junior year that I really started to notice like, this is getting a little out of hand. I was going out on Thursdays with friends to get a couple beers and then immediately working off like a thousand calories in the morning before eating. Cause I had to, it was about control, which is unfortunately the eating disorder part is like, you have to control. Otherwise you totally lost everything and you, you're reminded of the person you don't want to be. It's, it's crazy when people walk through our doors here at the gym. Um, you know, I had a couple therapist on a, a few weeks ago and we talked about kind of body image and things like that. And I said, I, I wish there was a way where insurance could cover, um, us having a therapist maybe on staff because a lot of the people that walk through our doors at the gym here, I try to talk to them about their mental state first, because sure. if they're not in a good spot on how they feel about themselves at all, they're going to fall off the wagon time and time again. Absolutely. So it's funny that you brought that up. You were chasing this impossible dream. And a lot of people don't understand what is healthy. What is a healthy body fat percentage? What is a safe body fat percentage to have? And and we always preach that. So I hear you say that. And I wish... You know, I would have known you before then, and I could have been like, Cody, listen. <laughs> like, listen you're young, you're in shape, you need to stop this. You're trying to chase perfection here, and it's not possible. It's not a way to walk through life, you know? And and that was the that was the most interesting part was that I always had new goals. So I would I would quote unquote achieve a goal. Like I'd I'd get to a max, like I'd I'd um, have a, a PR in something, and I'd be like, Yes, like I'm working towards this goal. But then I'd actively do things to sort of cut myself down from that goal because I didn't know what I was actually chasing. What I was really chasing was that need to control the part of myself that I was ashamed of. So it was like it was like a total it, it was I don't want to I can't I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. Oh, yeah, you can. We're we're unedited, <laughs> baby. Let it go. <laughs> oh, OK. Because it's a total mindfuck because yeah. because you keep having to push the expectations that you're giving yourself to feed something that you 
that is just really, really, really dangerous. And that was, that was hard. That, that was really hard, especially in a time where, you know, you're a young adult, like, and I'm still a young adult, but at that time I was just comparing myself to everyone else. And that was hard. So I think it's almost worse now with how social media has gotten to, and everybody shows this very polished, filtered image of themselves. And back when you were going through it, uh, you know, was Instagram around then yet? Or was that big yet or not? Oh, yeah, totally. I Yeah, okay. I have Instagram posts that I still laugh at, like I, yeah. where I'm like, you know, <laughs> just dumb stuff. Yeah, so, you know, and, and I try to tell people to, you know, unfollow some of these accounts on here because everybody wants to show you the polished image, but they don't want to show you, you know, the hard work that it took to get there a lot of times. You right. know, people don't see that. So it's unrealistic to think, oh, I'll just take this magic pill and I'll be just like the people on Instagram, you know? Exactly. I think society exactly. makes it worse there. So you went to therapy finally. When when did that happen? Did somebody say, hey, Cody, I think you really need to go talk to somebody about this? Or did you kind of discover that on your own? It was the it was a mix, I think. It was, it was in grad school. Um, grad school, I was sort of faced with like, a touch of loneliness because of because of just the life transition of it all. So that came at, a, at an unfortunate time because I was working harder than I've ever worked because I was working while going to grad school and I was away from all of my friends. So like things sunk in a little differently. <laughs> um, yeah. um, and I, and I noticed it. I've always like, you know, I, I avoided the biggest thing that was hurting me in my life, but I'm good at noticing the small things like, why are you not happier? Why are you more stressed out or burning out? So I'd, I'd be good at noticing those things. And what ended up happening was I, um, I had seen there was on like our we get like the grad school emails like the UConn updates or whatever, and on one of them was like you could go see a um, a counselor just like for a, a check-in session or whatever, but it was mostly for like academic stuff or like stress overwhelmed with stress. So I was like, oh, I'll just say I'm overwhelmed with stress. And in that 45 minutes, I somehow had disclosed a couple things that they she was like hey, we should get you connected. Like she saw something that I didn't see and I was just venting. Um, and I'm very fortunate that that happened because from there, that's when I um, that's when I really went to go see someone. Gotcha. Um, is that whole process what kind of started you down the path of, oh, maybe this is what I want to do for a living? Or were you already down that path before you went and talked to somebody? I think that's what makes my story so weird is that I was already down the path and I had, I was, I was way down the path and I, my, my, um, specialty is with addictions. Um, and eating disorders and addictions are very, they, they sort of coincide. They're almost co-occurring sometimes because it's all about the same things. It's about control and it's about, um, the, the same parts of your brain are compromised and I don't want to go into like neuropsych and stuff like that. But like when I was actively binging and things like that, I, the, the prefrontal cortex, like the part of my brain that makes like rational decisions was not at the wheel, you know? So I was at times at the wheel working with clients who were going through a lot of really hard things. Like I dealt with clients who were, had addictions and I dealt with clients who had anorexia nervosa, which is like one of the really more intense eating disorders. And I could somehow compartmentalize that. I could be like, Oh, well, I'll, I can help them. Cause I understand what they're going through, but I'm good because look, I'm helping. So, it, so that was sort of my internal battle, right? Was I was 
I felt like I was above that. And it was also, I think it, it also compounds with like being a man. Cause I was like, well, I'm I mean, also like, I can totally decide to figure this out whenever I want, you know? And, and just let me, let me, let me figure out, like, I'll just take control back of my workout routine and then I'll, I'll like myself next year. That's so interesting. You, you wanted to help people. You're in this, you're going down this path to get in this profession of helping people. A lot of times we forget to help ourselves at the end of the day. Self-care is a huge, huge problem. And it's, and you know, you're in a profession where you're kind of a nurturer. You're taking care of people. That's what you want to do. You know, we see the same thing here. We have to remember sometimes that you know, we have stress, we need to get our exercise and we need to go to therapy too, to get rid of these things as well. Um, so the science behind a little bit, I mean, you don't have to go super far in depth, but you just mentioned your prefrontal cortex and how that wasn't at the wheel. Get into that a little bit more for the listeners and explain to them why it's okay to have these feelings because your brain is reacting in, in a certain way. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest things that I learned through therapy, but also through my coursework unintentionally, I guess, was that um, with an active addiction or with any sort of um, eating disorders fall into that category, I think, um, is when you're actively binging, let's say, let's say if it's binge eating disorder or something like that, um, when you're in the binge, you're satisfying the back part of your brain, which is like the limbic system. So you're getting flooded with dopamine and serotonin and GABA, all these awesome neurotransmitters that make you feel amazing it fills the part of you that you're not accessing on your own um so you you when you're in it you think it's rational but it's really the part of your brain that just needs 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 something you're feeling something else and that is the more impulsive part of your brain um same thing with addiction like i tell students like the reason why addicts don't feel shame stealing is because they're chasing the drug with this part of their brain it's the reason why when i was when i was in the throes of an eating disorder i would I mean, I would spend so much money just going to different places, getting food and things like that. And that's not a rational decision. Like I didn't have money in grad school and undergrad. Like I was wasting a lot of money. So rationally, that makes no sense. But the impulse is what carried me there because I know I, at that point, nothing, no one was going to tell me that I didn't need it. And I made a lot of stupid decisions and blew off a lot of people and like vicariously not hurt a lot of people, but was dismissive in relationships because I was feeding that versus being present with them. And that's what happens with addiction because at the end of it, when you're done binging or when you're done using, um, you get hit with that rational piece again, it comes back. Your prefrontal cortex is back in balance and you feel a lot of shame because that's what's hiding behind all that rush of emotion is, is, is shame and, uh, and a lot of guilt and whatever else you're carrying. Um, and that's what I learned and that's what I teach. And it's really, it's really hard. <laughs> I was going really to, I was going to say you're, you're dealing with chemicals in your brain and you have to think against that and almost change your biology over time by your thoughts, which is, which is not an easy thing to do. How did you start to overcome this eating disorder? What are some techniques or some things that your therapist help you walk through to start you on the road to recovery with that? The biggest thing I learned was self-compassion. Um, and I, it's what I, I think if you asked any of the clients that I work with, it's the, it's one of the biggest things that I use because at the end of the day, I was giving to everyone else around me. And I feel like I was forgetting myself oftentimes. Um, and I was 
I wouldn't, I was so hypercritical of, of myself. Um, and again, there was a lot of shame tied to it too. So I, I had to learn to say, it's okay to have, to, to go out with friends. Like that's normal. That's what we, we, it's okay to, to have a beer on a Thursday. And I, I had to say that, I'd have to say to myself that um, this is something that's that's okay, but also saying that you don't need to punish yourself for for doing things that other that people do without thinking of these things. Like I had to be more rational in a sense. I had to like sort of that's the one thing I could get, can take control over is being kind to myself rather than controlling everything else while at the end of the day always feeling the same. Does that does that kind of make oh. sense? That was sort of the biggest thing for me. Totally. No, that was absolutely great answer so now I you're... Other... go ahead oh sorry ahead. i was saying i think the other thing too is like one of the things that i did before i figured it out was i was like okay maybe if i just did a better job of controlling so i would say to myself okay i'm i, I won't binge today i won't i will i'm just gonna use my fitness pal and i'll just track everything so that i, I i'm, I'm a, quote unquote allowing myself so many calories and things like that so i would hyper focus on that stuff but it really just made me even more that addictive personality that part of me that wanted to control things would be like okay so i can go and do this and i can do this and then if i screwed up anything if anything came off course like if someone offered me a brownie at like two in the afternoon i'd be like it's i would implode internally and that would send me spiraling so that small things threw me off course and i had to say it's okay to it's okay to be a little bit off course so i had to learn to be okay with with those feelings that naturally I would just stuff and I literally was stuffing. So it was really, really hard. And that's, I think that's the, that's like the overarching message is that it takes a lot of work because even someone who I knew what I was doing to myself, like I had all the terminology for it. I had all of the, I saw the people who were going through either close to the same thing or were dealing with similar things. And I still was able to tell myself that I was different. And that is what really got me. It's so interesting to hear, you know, a lot of people go to therapy and they kind of paint their therapists as, I don't, I don't want to say like not normal people, but, <laughs> or, or the people that ha have all the answers, but we all have our problems. It doesn't matter who you are. So I think that's an overwhelming message that, you know, I want to get out to people by having somebody like you on the show is, yeah. Hey, it's okay to be a little messed up. Life is not going to be perfect. We all yeah. have our things and it's okay to go talk to somebody about this, to work through that. Yes. Um, there's, there's a quote that I love by, um, and I'm sure some of, maybe some of your podcast listeners, I know a lot of my clients and, um, people that I that I teach, people that I speak to, know Brene Brown, who is a fantastic clinical social worker. She's a speaker. She does all kinds. She's been on different podcasts and things. But one of her most famous quotes is, "There's no greater burden than an untold story." And I think what was the most hard for me was to say that my story deserved to be heard, um, because even when I was sort of on the road to recovery there was no way I was telling anyone. I was like, nope, this is because I'm a man and I, there's people are going to think this is fucked. Like this is totally like that. I must be the only one going through this. And even I knew that that wasn't the case. Like stats told me that that wasn't the case. And other people don't have the luxury of being like, no, no, no. I treated someone like that like a year ago. <laughs> um, but, but for me, it was like, I didn't, there was that shame took over even when I was in recovery. Cause I was saying, I can't, I can't. 
But for me to really, truly keep moving forward with my recovery, I had to continue telling my story. And this is why doing these are so important. And I think that's why I wanted to take advantage of this. And I'm glad I found you was because I'm never going to not be in recovery. I'm still going to always be working on myself. And if that's through spreading, spreading this message and um, telling my story in the most authentic way, then I'm going to keep doing it because it helps me and it helps the listeners. So that's, yeah. Are you going to, the first time we talked, did you mention you are going to try to do some motivational speaking, give some speeches, uh, do some speaking engagements and stuff like that? Did you say you were getting into that? I'm yeah, I'm trying to work my way into that. I, it's been something I've always been interested in. I love, like I said, I love teaching and I love being in front. I love speaking in general, like public speaking. Um, and I do think that this, the story's worth it. Um, and I, I've started with podcasts. Um, this is like the second or third one that I've done since I've moved out to California. Um, and I was inspired by someone I actually, who I saw when I first moved here, um, who's also telling his story of, um, another male who, um, was telling his story about an eating disorder a little differently, um, but how to over overcome. And he was inspiring other people. And I said, Holy crap, this is something that I could see myself doing. Um, so it starts here and we'll see where it goes. I mean, I'm, I mean, I love the work that I do now. I love my job here and I love teaching. And if I have time in my schedule to do other things like that, then I'm going to take the opportunity. That's awesome. No, I, I love it. And I, I was glad when you reached out to me too, because I'm like, okay, this perspective needs to get out there in the world. There's so much bad news, bad news, bad news. That's the goal of our podcast is to help people give tangible advice from yeah. somebody who's been through these things. When you are dealing with somebody with addiction, one yep. question I asked, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, we had the therapist on, I asked him, how do you deal with, you work with somebody for so long and then they go and they relapse on an issue that yep. you've worked so hard through. Is it nearly impossible not to get like, take it personal and get really, really frustrated with them? What do you go through as a therapist when it comes to that? You're talking about like compassion fatigue, I think. Um, it's essentially that we take on so much of the the load in terms of getting a client somewhere or being a part of a client's journey and um, and then suddenly uh, like relapse with with relapse, it's it all tears down and, and you're back to step one. What I would say I've tried to learn about just that and, and relapse and then coming back into recovery and sort of working on that person again through clients that I've had is that each time you relapse, the, the chances that you are going to recover and that there's a better chance of recovery. Um, the average, the average um, individual with substance use disorder who goes into treatment will, will be back in treatment another eight times. The average relapses, you, you, if you're an individual with an addiction, you will relapse at least eight times before figuring it out. And that's a wow. stat that you can look up. Um, I work at residential treatment centers where we expected someone to relapse and we would talk about it in group, which is like, we might see you again. We don't wish it on you, but we're going to do some work and we're going to keep the door open. When you come back, you're going to know a little bit more about yourself. And maybe the next thing you learn about yourself is that you can't go back to the same town that you lived in, or there are people that you need to move on from, or God forbid, I don't know. There are so many different factors with addiction. Um, I noticed one thing for me was that I couldn't, I stopped working out in the mornings and that seems like such a small thing. It's so stupid. But one of the things that I took control over with this quote unquote addiction was that I'd work out in the mornings 
to be in a negative a calorie deficit and then I would I'd push off breakfast and I'd keep pushing things off and that would set my day off and again I'd combust so one of the things I had to do was say like that is detrimental to me I will relapse if I start doing that again um so it's just about learning more about yourself each time and in the therapist seat it feels good to know that people if you leave the door open people will walk back in so it's a bitch and it takes forever (laughs) but it it, but that's what we have to go through it's like part of what it is when you start working with these people's families that have substance abuse issues addiction problems what's the first couple things you go to tackle with them to ensure that this person is going to get back on the right track well i guess it depends on the family i've dealt with a lot of very hurt families because um in active addiction the people that are hurt the most are the people that love that the addict the most. Um, that's just a fact because they're the ones that get stolen from. They're the ones that get abused and neglected. And so part of it is being able to do that psychoeducation and say, look, this is the part of the brain that's taking over. He does not want, he or she does not want to do this to you. This is, this has been, a, this is a part of necessity now, like without the drug or the substance or whatever it is, this person is, will will you know depending on the drug will die or will go into withdrawals and that is just too much for that person to handle and so trying to detach that emotional piece like how could you hurt me like that and i've had so many families tell me i've had moms say i've i've gone to my last you know i'm i'm just barely holding on by a thread like but if he can't quit for me then then i'm done and and that's so hard to hear because it doesn't really matter at that point um, so it's really hard. You have to, it's t- about talking to the family about, look, like detaching is okay, but making sure to leave the door open for the addict when they're ready is, is really the key. Because if you become too codependent or whatever you want to call it, um, it ends up hurting you even more. It's so hard. I know I keep saying that, but it's, <laughs> it's like, it's like a puzzle with families. There's so much, yeah, I'm sure there's so much to unbox there. What, in your opinion, is our country doing enough for mental health issues? What, <laughs> what can we do? Like, what can you and I do on like a yeah. local level to mm-hmm. kind of help get more awareness? Is it just stuff like this or is there other things that you think we could be doing to help out with this? I, well, first of all, I, I think on, on a, on a, like, on a state-to-state level, I think, with mental health, I think we're doing okay with substance use. We're doing miserably. Um, so, But those are two different things that should maybe be talked about in the same breath because um, oftentimes mental health and substance abuse are co-occurring. So if, if I were to do anything in my community, it would be sort of being able to talk about mental health and substance abuse in the same light to say that someone with a substance use disorder isn't just siloed into this person with bad behaviors and bad characteristics and no willpower and, and, you know, comes, has to have came from a shitty family and is destined to be shitty. Um, that's just not the full story. And that's sort of the problem with mental health and substance use in general is that you're getting bits and pieces of an incomplete story. And then everybody else gets to make judgments on, on that incomplete story. So maybe I would, I, I, know it's hard especially in the climate we live in now but asking for more tolerance and more openness to hearing someone's story um it's the reason why i want to do things like this because there are a lot of untold stories 
And I think there are a lot of people that might be listening to your podcast who have had similar stories as someone like me. Whether And it doesn't need to be with an eating disorder or with a substance use problem. But someone sure as hell's been bullied in middle school and hasn't talked about it for a while. And it's been it's impacted the person they are today for the good or the bad. And that's sort of these conversations that we never think we can have, we actually can have if we're able to be received the right way. So on a, a local level, I'd want to do more talks. I'd want to do work in schools, destigmatizing mental health and, and sort of doing more psychoeducation. That's why I'm so glad I get to teach because thank God I can at least talk to 14 undergraduate students about addiction um, who have come in with a view that is going to be changed by the end of the semester. And I think you can do the same thing with the podcast you're promoting. You're doing exactly what I'm talking about. You're, you're bringing light to things that people would rather not bring light to on their own. And you're doing a fantastic job of keeping people informed in a, in a like restorative way. It's sweet. Yeah. It, it's tough to cut through all the no- negative negativity and the negative noise that's out there. I think that's the toughest challenge yeah. that you and I face as, you know, promoters of this and wanting to bring awareness of this. It's all the negative news gets the attention, right? Yeah. So that's why I literally, we spend hundreds of dollars to boost this podcast around the country just for that purpose. I want to cut through this stuff and show people, Hey, there are some people that are trying to help out there, <laughs> you know, and it's a crazy concept that all oh, these guys are actually doing something good for the betterment of humanity, you know? Um, we, yeah, I think oftentimes people are like, what's the ulterior motive here? Like, yeah. like, Oh, you like, Oh, you want to, you want to speak at public schools and talk about your story? Like how much are they giving you? Or like, you know, like there's always the ulterior motive. Like, is this even true? You know, I get that in the room sometimes like there be supposed to be this sacred place, like this confidential space. And sorry, I think you, I cut off there, but um, no, you're good. it's supposed to be this confidential sacred space. And I still get people who come into the room and they're like, I don't know. Like there's skepticism that could be for a bunch of different things, but it's like, why do, why are you doing this for the betterment of whoever? And it's like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, And that's what you're doing too. Yeah. Um, as far as other orders go, one thing that I want to ask you about is, dealing with stress. We're all, we're all stressed. I want to know some strategies that Cody uses on a daily basis to help calm the storm of just everyday little things that pile up on you. What are some techniques? What are some things that you're using now? Oh, I love that. Um, I, so I've recently, I've been trying a bunch of different things. I play basketball. So I've done, um, I do like meetup groups. It's like a club sports and stuff like that. So like I know on I know on Wednesday nights that after I get done teaching I get to go play basketball for an hour, and just like just that I can lose myself in that. Um, you know, stupid stuff like I'm going to they do six dollar movie nights they do like half price movie nights and me and my roommate are gonna like I know that like if I have a hard day I know that at the end of it I can go to Taco Tuesday, and then go see a movie like and also I plan fun and I never used to do this I didn't think I didn't think I deserved it for some reason, but I plan fun things on the weekends in advance so I can be like, oh, it's been a tough, like this is going to be a really grueling week. And I knew this week in particular would be a demanding week. So on Sunday, I'm planning like a beach trip or like whatever, but it gives you something to look forward to so I can be like, this is the reason why I I can stay motivated. Um, 
for the just the day-to-day stuff i don't do anything fancy like meditate or do yoga which would be nice but i do it in different ways um doesn't mean i don't promote it i think meditation has proven to be fantastic and so is yoga and it's individualized though and there are a lot of ways to do it wrong so you'll know when you when you find the right one and i found a couple good ones i think I like that. I like that. Keeping yourself, having something to look forward to is really, really good. I, You know what I found always happens to me, too, is when I have something planned on the weekends, for some reason, the universe likes to make my week a lot harder than I think it has to be. Totally. <laughs> totally. So that totally. it is. I do the same thing, though. I tell myself, hey, just remember, you got three more days and then you can mm-hmm. go to this concert. You know, that's a really good point. That's nice. I mean, one of the one of the biggest things. So I do I, I do private practice on the side, and the thing with private practice, especially because I do a lot of work, my specialties with like child and adolescence, is that all these kids are getting out of school around three o'clock, and so like I would plan things. I'm like, okay, I just gotta make it to like seven, and I hate working until like seven eight o'clock. But I'm like, if I just make it to that last session, like go treat yourself with like you know go get a drink or like go do whatever, go meet a friend, and. It's true. The universe sometimes is like, no, we'll throw something real stupid at you. Like, <laughs> you'll have to be in session way longer. Um, same thing with, I just started doing like life coaching, which I think is a fantastic alternative to like the clinical work that you see in, in traditional therapy. Like life coaching is more of like being like a, just a, a supportive guide. Um, a lot like what you might do in personal training is saying like, what are your goals and how can we actualize them in a way that's healthy and keeps you, keep, you know, you're mutually accountable and that seems to be like the bane of my existence now. As soon as I've started that, I get like emails at the most op- inopportune time being like, hey, can we go over this real quick? And I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody, so, everybody's priority number one. Didn't you know that, Cody? <laughs> obviously. Uh, no, I, I like that. No, that's that's really good advice. Thank uh, you, man. As we, as we wrap up here, I always like to ask people for two pieces of advice. We've covered a lot of topics. We've covered a lot of things. I think I know what one of them is going to be, but <laughs> what are two what are two top level pieces of advice that you want to share with people to I guess live a better life or anybody struggling with an addiction or a disorder or anything like that? Two things that you need to get out there it was probably the hardest thing I had to learn, but starting to treat myself like I would treat a friend. Um, that sounds so corny, but I, I feel like your audience is overwhelmingly givers and we lose ourselves when we give too much to other people. And, um, that was part of my journey is that I, that I got lost in that, I think at some point. And, being able to treat myself, even if it's like a little bit better, like, and that goes a long way. Like I've learned to treat myself half as good as I treat my friends. And I, so I still have that edge where I can be like kind of competitive and I can be hard on myself in, in a good way, in a useful way, but it does take control of who I am. Um, I think, I guess the other thing is to just be open about people's experiences. I think what got me unfortunately into this, space to no fault of anyone else's because it's normal just bullying was that I think there were signs along the way where there could have been intervention from someone who might have been open or more like curious and I think I've always tried to be someone who's curious like not just because of my job but just being able to 
to see warning signs and to say, hey, like I'm noticing that you're doing this. Are you okay? Like I'm, I feel like along the way there could have been a, there was a couple people in my life and I've had, I've in the same way been not so much of an active bystander where I've seen someone be doing something that I could ask them about, but I just felt uncomfortable. And I think that that would have gone a long way. Cause I think in those moments you sort of be like, you're, you're challenged the per the addict or whoever is like, Oh, people are noticing. Like, I thought I was hiding this. I thought I was doing a really good job hiding my shame. Like SOS. That is a big, I think that's a big force. I love if you that. Do it right. I love that. So. Those were amazing. I'm sure you have a lot more, but, uh, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a two, two trick pony, uh, like two trick pony. <laughs> No, those were awesome, man. And, you know, I really do want to take a second and commend you on the work that you are doing to kind of better people's lives. It's it's tough. People don't realize that, you know, we work on people's bodies. We work on changing their physical appearance. I, I believe the work you're doing to help people is almost more important. And you got to get that part right first before you can start the journey to get better. So I want to commend you on the work you're doing. I want to tell you to keep sharing your story. Do not Thanks. stop. We will support you in any way we can. Uh, if people want to learn more about you, is there a website for your practice that they can go on and do a little bit more digging on or contact you? Is, is there a way to do that? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple ways. Um, so for more of like clinical, that clinical piece, I do have a private practice. Um, I'm part of a group. It's so if you're, God forbid if you have people listening in the South Bay area, um, the, the private practice is South Bay um, uh, Child and Family Services. So you can look that up online. Um, and I'm part of the team. You can like scroll my name. I look like a 17 year old. Um, <laughs> in my, um, um, but I think what's probably more important in terms of just knowing me and um, I've been lucky enough to start. I, I have a blog that I really, really love and it's helped me in terms of my recovery um, and I'm, that's sort of catapulted this life coaching thing. And I think that's been a really important piece. So to do that, um, you can look under my, under my Facebook, it's called the human experience blog. Um, and it's, I'm sorry, I'm trying to find the, no, it's all fine. We'll go ahead and we'll link all this stuff up yeah. in the show notes too. So on the YouTube channel, we'll have it in there. And then we'll also include That's it perfect. in the Facebook post, the Facebook video, all that stuff. We'll make sure we link that stuff. So I'll get that from you, Cody, just That's so they fantastic. can they can all reach out for you. But yeah, those are definitely good resources. And yeah. we're going to, like I said, we're going to do everything we can to support you and what you're doing uh, and get that message of positivity out there. So thank, thank you. you. Oh, and I found it, by the way. I'm oh, so yeah. sorry. Yeah, go ahead. It's, it's the website is advancedlifecoaches.wix site. So it's a, it's a Wix site. So you can see it there. Um, it has sort of like my bio, sort of my story a little bit, and then sort of the blog and also the, the link to a consultation for life coaching. Cause I think that's part of what my story is, is sort of being able to, in a clinical way, there's a bunch of ethical boundaries and legal boundaries that sort of limit my scope. Um, and this is more of like a side passion. And I think that's more um, conducive to what we're talking about in this, in this podcast, Excellent. sort of like the stuff that we're talking about. Um, but dude, I appreciate you. This was a fantastic. Oh man. I loved having you on. I loved your perspective. And I think this is going to help so many um, 
you know, I, I just love how it came from a male's perspective for once, especially with what yeah. you went through, because we hear so much about the female perspective on this, that specific eating disorder topic. So this is going to help a lot of people. Thanks again for being on, my friend. I want to give a quick shout out again to our sponsors, EcoGym and Team Motivating You. If you guys are interested, if anyone out there is interested in becoming a sponsor of the One Health Podcast, make sure you guys go to our website, www.onehealthpodcast.com. You can also go on there to listen on whatever platform you want to. We're on uh, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. You name it, we're on it. All the links are on there. All of our videos are on there. Stay up to date on the latest news. Uh, That's all we got for you guys. Thanks a lot. Until next week.